Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reclaim Me. I have a return guest. I am joined today by Jordan Gray. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. So excited to be back. I'm so excited for you to be back as well. I mean, we've had so much interaction, you know, from people who have been listening to your episodes and, you know, so much is happening in this space at the moment as well, as you are well aware. Um, But for those of you who are listening now, please, if you haven't listened to part one and part two with Jordan, please go back and listen to those episodes uh, because she does go into her story of, being sexually assaulted on an Air Force base in Australia while she was an officer of the Air Force. And, you know, I think it's just really important to go back and listen to that. But, you know, the topic of your experience under those contexts and circumstances is it's imperative that we talk about it and shine a light on it because, you know, like we spoke about, people who are in the Defence Force do not talk about these types of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all about breaking that culture of silence and secrecy that is so rife. And it's just absolutely permeated, not only by junior ranks, but by the senior ranks as well. So we 100% need to start breaking that down. And I think the only way to do that is, as you said, to absolutely tell our truth um, and make sure that we can empower others as we do that. Absolutely. And, you know, like with so many cases, one it just takes one person to, you know, unravel or begin to pull at the thread that will unravel. And I feel like that's what you're doing and that's what, what we're going to see is um, so many people who have similar experiences reaching out to you or reaching out to the podcast because they've never told anybody in their lives before and this is the first time they've heard a story that reflects somewhat of theirs. Um, and that's an incredibly important 
uh, facet because I remember you said yourself that you had no plans on really coming forward and being public with your story until you saw Brittany Higgins um, coming forward as a member of working for the Australian government um, and kind of having that relation to it. So I can only imagine how much more impactful yours will be for members of the actual Defence Force. Yeah, thank you. I think think Brittany had that um, impact on a lot of people, right? And I think um, myself included, like, I saw her interview at home and I watched everything and the media fallout from everything and I went to work and I felt like no one was talking about it and there was absolutely no coverage of it inside the ADF at all. And then it got to March for Justice Day and my squadron leader at the time, um, so like a squadron leader is a rank, so like a supervisor, said, no, you can't go, like you can't take a half day, you can't take a day off, you are not going. And I said, oh, well, I don't want to go in uniform, I just want to go in plain clothes. And he went, you're not going. So then, like, I, I said, well, what else can I do? Um, so I just I had to sit at my desk so irate and just, like, shaking with anger because I couldn't be there to walk and, like, march alongside women who were calling for change in Australia, and I couldn't be there to do that. And there was no representative of the ADF at all that I ever heard or ever saw um, any, like, any publication about So then I sat at my desk that afternoon, like any good young junior officer would do, um, and I diligently wrote an email. Like some people laugh at that, but in the ADF, that's like a huge tool um, to reach the the higher like echelons of leadership. That's the only way that they really respond. So I sat there and I wrote this very academically like based, very big words um, email to them and basically said, the culture's the culture's fucked. Um, here are all of these examples. Here are all of these people who have come forward and like anonymously told me things that have happened to them. Here are the statistics. Here are the facts. Um, what are you going to do about it? Um, and then like to my surprise, like the senior officer I emailed it to, who was actually like, I, I guess I can say it now. He was the chief of air force at the time. And he actually replied and went, yeah, actually, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Um, like let's do some work on it. But then even then, um, the response that came out of it was fairly, tokenistic um, and fairly placating. So there was there was a little bit of real change, but it hasn't been substantial um, and certainly not long-lasting. So there's still such a long way to go to actually make the lived change a reality. Absolutely. And, you know, this is just one step in the right direction. So I commend you so much for what you're doing because it is so important. But where we landed off last time, you were kind of sharing your experience about how you were sitting in front of a bunch of other people uh, and two police officers and you were having your initial statement kind of taken down in front of a group of people Um, and I shared my absolute disgust and outrage at that Um, and then from there you went on to a more formal police process. Do you mind kind of talking to a little bit of the differentiation between those two things and and how, how you felt I guess going through that? Yeah absolutely for me there were two really different feelings um, with like with regards to the two versions, I guess you can say, of the statement. So we had the like the initial statement, as you said, which was taken. I was sitting on the floor in a lounge room. I was reasonably comfortable, like on my it was as much on my on my own terms as I could get, right? Like I'd ask them to come and see me out at the base so that I didn't have to go to the police station straight after going to the hospital. Um, and they sat on the lounge taking notes on a notepad. In that moment, Like, I think I was at the end of the day, so I was so tired and so overwhelmed and just so drained from everything that had been that day already. 
Um, I didn't actually, so from there, I didn't see the police again until two days later, which was when I gave my official recorded statement. So I had to be driven into town. So as I said in the last episode, I lived remotely. So in a, in a remote location in Australia and the town was about 20 minutes from the base. So um, they organized for my designated support person to be my boss at the time, who was um, a male. Um, and he had no experience with this whatsoever. So he drove me into town and I felt so uncomfortable and I couldn't, I didn't have anyone else with me. I didn't have any family, any close friends. So he actually came in with me to the police station and I asked if he could sit in the room with me. Cause I just didn't feel like being alone with people that I didn't know. Um, and I'd only known my boss at that point for six months. So I didn't know him extensively and I didn't know how he was going to react to everything, but to his credit, he was ever the professional and just sat there and just tried to comfort me where he could. He was he was not very good at emotions, to put it simply, but just his presence there was enough for me to feel protected. So that was good enough for me at the time. Um, but, yeah, so what happened was I came to the police station. They took me into the statement room. They talked me through what the process was going to be. So they explained where the cameras were in the room, where the microphones were in the room, um, they had not a notebook in front of them with some notes to run through, um, and asked me to verify essentially all of like what I had told them two days prior, but in more detail. So I remember the police officer saying to me, uh, look, I want you to give us as much information as possible. So the way I normally like to start this is I like the person to close their eyes and exactly imagine everything that they can see and step me through step by step everything that you remember from leaving your house uh, that afternoon to when you woke up the next morning. And it was easily probably one of the toughest things I've had to recount. And I haven't said everything out loud again um, since that Sunday very briefly, so the two days prior. So, and having to like replay it out loud and, and this time in far more detail than the last was so overwhelming and so scary. It was like I was coming to this realization in some parts, like, holy shit, I didn't realize that before. And he was asking me to describe sensations. So, like, when I woke up that morning, he asked me to, in a lot of detail, describe the physical sensations that I was feeling, where I was feeling them. And then he was taking all of those notes as well. And it was, yeah, very intimidating because I felt kind of boxed into a corner with where I was sitting and the police officer, he was quite a burly man. So he was just like a bit aggressive with his questioning, not towards me. I think just in like, that was just his general nature, but it was a very intimidating experience being in that room. And obviously my support person couldn't say anything and he was directed not to say anything, but it was just so overwhelmingly terrifying again to be in that position and just like be absolutely sobbing in parts of retelling my story and giving my statement and then not even being able to be comforted and just trying to self-soothe, you know, like, and I now know that I was like, like working myself through what was a panic attack. So I was trying to self-soothe by like stroking my arms and like breathing and just telling myself that it was going to be okay. And I didn't know that any of those signs and symptoms were I guess, like indicative that I was having a panic attack. Like I didn't know any of that until years later, but yeah, a very, very intense and intimidating time. 
I mean, it sounds horrible and obviously having to relive any of this is, is a really difficult thing, especially like in a place where you feel intimidated. But it does sound like this officer was trying to get as much information as possible, which sounds really good in a sense of they've taken it seriously. They're not dismissing an allegation. They're going through every single thing. And that, to me, often says these are people who are invested in potentially laying more than one charge. You know, they're doing it as much as as good as they possibly can. But it is right, like when you said describing sensations, this has gone from being like you recounting something, you know, from like a a rewind and pressing play on a cassette tape version to you re-experiencing it again with the addition of sensations like, you know, um, the feelings, the, the smells, the sounds. There's so much in that that gives you a more visceral reaction as well. So what was it like, I guess, going through that part of it? Did it feel like it was re-traumatizing you or did you feel like there was, was there any form of comfort in kind of being able to go through it in such detail? I don't think for me there was any comfort in that moment. There's been comfort since um, and there is comfort now in, in, in replaying that story, but in that moment it was just reliving that complete trauma again and it was so fresh. And as I said, like I hadn't said most of that out loud. I'd given the, the grand overarching version of that when I'd spoken to the police two days prior and um, obviously they'd, they'd directed me not to not to tell a lot of people and the Air Force had done the same. So I was keeping all of the details relatively close to my chest and it was just like completely consuming every part of me. So my thoughts, feelings, emotions, dreams, everything was just, it was all I could, all I could think about. So in that moment for me, it was incredibly re-traumatizing and I think it was like the first time in those, what was it, like two, three days that I'd actually let myself feel and like remember back as much as I could and it was so difficult for me because then they 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 pushed me on the fact that I couldn't remember past a certain time period and I tried to get as much out of that as possible and I sat with it and he asked me like the officer asked me so many different questions to try and probe more as as much as I could remember from that from that blackout period that I that I still can't remember to this day but that was terrifying for me because I was almost coming to that realization then again that I like I definitely didn't remember anything and that was absolutely terrifying to like to think that there's a certain point in your night where your night ends but in fact that your night hasn't ended and you are very much still there that that to me is and still is so terrifying and reliving that in a police station which is such a sterile environment like not comfortable there's no none of your safe people around there's it's not a safe place um so that was that was really difficult yeah, that's horrible. And you've already had to relay it once in a different environment that was completely like, so it is, it's quite, it's taking you on this really chaotic journey that's really re-traumatizing mentally, emotionally, physically. You know, people often say things like, why don't more people come forward? And sometimes when people get to this point, they go, you know what, just don't worry about it. It's too much. And you know, the thing that comes to my mind when we say that as well is sometimes those are counted as statistics for making it up. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that will say people, false allegations are at 2%. It's like, they're not, they're actually not, they're much lower than that. Because what do you consider to be a false report? Um, but just as I went over that, I think it's a really great way for people to visualize the process for people and how many hurdles you have to jump over. And should you choose to give up at any hurdle, 
um, that can be taken and seen in so many ways. So, you know, I think what you've gone through is absolutely horrible and horrific, but sadly that's not the end of it because then you've had to go through ensuing months and then court. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so for me, the process, and, and I imagine like many victim survivors was very extended. Um, and for me, the months that followed also involved a, like an interstate move. So the court case was happening and unfolding in the state where I was living at the time that it happened. Um, and because the Air Force had decided to post me, I was actually moving interstate at the same time. So while everything was still proceeding through the courts um, in that state, I was 3,000 kilometres away trying to set up a new life, trying to stay on top of all the court updates that I needed to, like, wanted to get because I needed for my peace of mind to understand what was happening um, and just to have, like, updates if there was a mention or, you know, like what happened today. And that actually turned out to be very fortunate for me because I understood the the process the whole way through, even though a lot of the times it didn't make sense because I'm not trained in law. Um, but it was because of those updates that I called and got. Um, it wasn't that someone was calling me. I had to call and ask for the updates um, from, so in the state that where where my assault happened, you get a witness support officer, but the witness support office itself is incredibly understaffed. So you don't get someone designated just to your case. Sometimes you might just call and you say, hi, I'm like a victim, a witness in this case. Can I please have an update? Um, and they'll just go, oh, yep, let me log on to the system. And it's not very personal at all. Like you are chasing everything if you want the information. Um, and it's so, it was so, like it felt this, that there was so much pressure on me almost because then the Air Force um, where I was posted to was asking me for updates. So they were going like, you know, like where is the, where's the case progressing to? Where's it at this week? Like when's the next mention so that we can plan whether or not you're going to be um, like, present at work and whether or not you're going to be able to work at work and like we need to know these things and I was like well like how much do you want me to do like I'm trying to move into a new house I'm trying to set up my life here I'm trying to figure out this new job that I'm completely underqualified for and you want me to stay on top of a legal process that's happening 3,000 kilometers away that I have to call to get information about um so it was just so overwhelming um and what ended up happening was so from the day support for you as well like it's just none it's like you do all of this stuff and you update us it's not like can we support you in any way how can we make this process easier for you how can we help you in any way like don't want like what, what the fuck guys come on yeah and it was just like it was absolutely insanity and they I know they offered me they said like oh you know like you can call air force legal so I did call Air Force Legal because I went like, you know, I don't understand any of this legal mumbo jumbo that I'm getting from the witness support office. Like it's all well and good for me to regurgitate that to my chain of command and go, this is the update you wanted, but I wasn't understanding it. So I called Air Force Legal and I went, you know, like, can I have um, like a like a legal officer that I can talk to like maybe every month when there's these mentions just so I can understand and someone can explain to me in simpler terms what is going on in these mentions? Um, which should be like it, it should have been accessible to me, but I called Air Force Legal and they told me that wasn't possible um, because it was go- it was taking place in the civilian courts and they weren't allowed to to give me legal advice because it was considered a personal matter. So I didn't get any legal assistance from the Air Force, um, no matter how many times I I'm tried. Sorry, it's and- considered a 
it's considered a personal matter for an assault that was done by an uh, another officer on base correct because it was taking place in the civilian court so because of um like the charge which was um like a sexual intercourse without consent and a gross indecent act without consent um it was taking place in a civilian court so in in the in the mind of the defense force out of our hands it's taking place it's being it's being heard by someone else um so they weren't they can understand them at all I can understand them like maybe not being experts on the civilian processes, so maybe being underqualified to be able to provide you legal representation, but you are working in this environment. You, It's impacted your work. It's happened on base at work. You would think that they would consider this also a work matter for you. It's a workplace matter. Mm. It's a work safe matter. How are we just fobbing you off? Oh, no, I mean, see, that's the thing. I, I say so, that as if I'm surprised, but the fact hmm. that, you know, this isn't surprising at all because you're a woman and this is what you should expect. Yeah. And see, that's the thing, but like you, we can, we can expect that, but the lawyers in air force and the lawyers in defense are trained in not just defense law. They're trained in civilian law and most of them who most of the legal profession, and I say this as a generalization um, in the defense force are actually reservists. So they have civilian jobs that they often go to and when they are working as a reservist, they're just they're doing extra days. Um, so most of them and a couple that I know are like barristers in the civilian courts or they are prosecutors in the civilian courts and then they just complete reserve days just to, you know, like I guess do extra work or give back or be part of that service and have that that different identity. So it's not like they didn't have the information and they couldn't have explained it to me. They 100% could have, but they just said because it was happening in a civilian court and it was a matter that was not considered, um, like they couldn't, I guess, pursue it or persecute, prosecute it under the defence force law, that it was a personal matter. So, and that becomes relevant later when we get to another part of the story, um, which was in the actual trial, in the, in the week of the trial. So... Yeah, that, um, that, I guess that's, yeah, that's like, I asked for legal advice and was never given it. Um, so that was, it was incredibly just, difficult to deal with. Yeah. And it's just so many points of failure from the beginning of your story, you know, but even from the level of the person who's giving you the information, giving you information that includes legal jargon that you can't understand, and then having to go and try and seek assistance from that, not being able to get it because it doesn't fall within the specific parameters of the ways that you can receive that. Like it's just so many points of failure and nobody is looking out for you. Everybody's looking out for themselves or everybody else. And I feel like when we talk about putting the victim at the center of these processes, this is what we're talking about. You should not have to chase up this shit. You should not have to seek legal representation to have something explained to you. You you should be treated with dignity and respect and the fact that there are so many points of failure and you've experienced every single fucking one of them is just absolutely devastating. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think that, like, gives me some sort of validation. Like, you know, like I wasn't crazy because there were times in that process and especially in those months where I was trying to balance so many different things and especially after having moved that I, like, I did put my hand up and I said, like, I feel like I'm trying to do too much here and I feel I feel really overwhelmed. And that was one of the first times that I actually went to the doctor on base and said, I cannot cope. 
Like I am burnt out. I am struggling. I am like, I go home and I cry myself to sleep because I have, I have no idea what's happening in my life. I have no control over anything. And that was the first time they put me on, on what was considered stress leave. And I just, I couldn't do it. And then work gave me a whole heap of different, um, I guess, feedback and information because then they were still chasing me for stuff. Even though I was on sick leave, they were like, you know, like we want you to keep us updated for what the next update is that comes out of the court where this is happening in that state. Um, you just need to keep us updated so that we can keep the paperwork up to date. And I went like, just let me have my stress leave in peace, but it wasn't possible. So (laughs) it's literally called stress leave. (laughs) It was not possible. I was like, ah, (laughs) the absurdity of that. You know what we should do? We should put pressure on the person who's on stress leave. (laughs) Yeah, they need to give us <laughs> that, more information. We're going to get everything we want. Oh, that was exactly how it felt too. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm laughing at them, not at you. I'm sorry. For the listeners, <laughs> okay, because we can see each other, it's a very different experience. <laughs> so if you're listening to that and she's saying it was horrible and I'm laughing, that's not what's happening. <laughs> it's just like, but in so many of these stories, I've laughed so much because it's like it, it is laughable. Like, yeah, you know. You look back on this stuff and it's just so bad that it is laughable. Um, but you did say that you not only were you going through that, but then you landed, you know, when the trial actually happened. Did you have to go back for the trial or were you just aware of the trial? Yeah, so I was subpoenaed back for the trial. The initial trial date was scheduled um, for about 18 months. It was pretty much 18 months exactly to the day um afterwards so that would have put us in the December like 18 months ahead of that so and I was ready to get on a plane and I got a phone call at 5 p.m the afternoon before I was meant to fly at 9 p.m that night saying they've just come out of court there's been an like an emergent mention of of the trial ahead of next week the trial's been postponed like four hours before I was meant to get on a flight and I had worked myself up to the point where I was like, I was off work, still on stress leave. I had just met my new partner, like my, my current partner, we'd just met. So this poor man was dealing with me. I got this phone call and I went into an absolute meltdown. Like I had prepared myself four weeks for this. I'd been working on my victim impact statement. I had multiple meetings with the lawyer, uh, like the prosecutor who at the time was the deputy um, prosecutor for that state. And like, I'd had multiple meetings, worked myself up, been like, holy shit, like, I need to come to, I need to come to terms with this. I'm going to see all of XYZ people next week. Um, and then they cancelled the, like, they postponed the trial that afternoon. And I still don't know the legal reasoning as to why, but I just, I went into full meltdown mode. I remember getting yeah, in the shower, just like fully clothed and just sat in the shower for half an hour, water running over me. And it wasn't until my partner came in and said, like, are you okay? Like what's going on? And I just like, he just got in there with me and just sat with me and just let me cry. And he just let me feel all of the feelings that I was feeling. Cause I was clearly just like so overwhelmed and I'd worked myself up to such a point. And then for it to just be ripped out, like I was expecting to move on after that, to begin the proper healing process, to put it all behind me, but I couldn't even do that then. And it got moved. The trial got moved. So and it's not, that's the other thing. And I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're sharing these experiences because this is so important for people to hear. It's yeah. not just 
the fact that you're retelling a story. It's everything around it. And I do not know one single person who's gone to court who's not had multiple dates pushed back. You know, I think my the trial against the man who sexually assaulted me as a child sexual abuse case, who somebody he was not remanded in custody either. That was yeah. pushed back. I think at least six to eight months. I think yeah. there were three or four adjournments. And you know, I think people think that victim survivors can't critically think that we don't. We're not aware that there are maybe more pressing issues, things like murder, that might come before our our trial that might cause an adjournment. But why are you overbooking to this level? Why does every single case and why are violent sexual assaults being pushed every single time? Like, look exactly what you're describing, how much this has negatively impacted you, how traumatizing just going through this was. And then you know you're going to have to get ready to do it all again because it's going to be at a later date. Yeah. And it was just like, I guess the best analogy to use was just like the the rug had been pulled from under me and I felt like nothing, like I I had no certainty all over again. And it's just, it's it was so difficult to come to terms with. And they called me back the next day. And they said, you know, like it's been pushed six months. We'll see you. This was um, like early in the December. We'll see you in mid-May next year. And I went, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like we've got to we've got to do this all again. And it was because the defence legal team, so when I say like this is where people get confused in my life because I go, oh, the defence legal team, and they go, the ADF legal team. And I, went, I go, no, no, like legally speaking, defence legal team. Um, the defence yes. legal team had come up with something and then, They'd been like, oh, we don't have enough information or whatever they do. I don't understand law. No lawyers, please come for me. Um, and then it got adjourned for six months just for something as simple as that. So that to me was baffling and it makes me so frustrated on behalf of all victim survivors everywhere to know that that process is not built for us. It is 100% built for the perpetrators and it is so fucking frustrating to sit there and just like to have everything move back. You work yourself up to an emotional point where you're like, okay, I'm fine. I'm, I'm going to work myself to this point where I know I have to talk about it again and I know I'm going to be questioned. And then it's all gone again. And you've got to wind yourself back down and then six months later wind yourself back up to get there again. So it's just, yeah, yeah it was an absolutely ridiculous time for me. And it's all contrived and conceded strategy because, like I just said before, there are so many points of failure and there are so many people that reach a certain hurdle and it's too much and that's when they stop. So you can imagine a defence strategy would be to continuously postpone and drag this out as long as possible because the more they do that, the more that they cause you anguish, the more time that you have to wait, the more maybe help that you get and less impactful this event was on your life is increasing the likelihood that you're going to pull out and drop the charges. So again, it's not about truth-telling. It's not about justice in the sense of coming to terms with finding what happened and and prosecuting that person, it's a chess game. And, you know, that it's just a horrific thing to think that the outcomes of a lot of these things are based on whoever plays the best game or whoever gives the best performance rather than it being based on sole facts and evidence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and that's terrifying, right? And we're also putting it in the hands of of a jury. And I know that it's meant to be like a jury of your peers and and whatever that means for for majority of people but in the state where my, where my incident happened the crowd of people are like it's genuinely not a very um like i guess state that understands the the modern age they are very conservative in the way that they think in the general population um and they they're just like your the best way to describe it and I hate saying it because it's a generalization, but like Bogan Australians, like that's what yeah. it was. So, and I knew, um, and like, I guess quick flash forward to six months later when I did go to the trial and I did see the jury, people rocked up to court in like wife beater singlets and thongs. And I went, how in the shit am I supposed to like, are, are they going to like, my, my mind went to a stereotype, right? I went, they're not going to believe me. Like, they're just going to side with him. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, I was looking at these men going, what? Like, how have you how have you thought that's an appropriate thing to rock up to court in? I don't understand. So, yeah. yeah. And again, like, you know, these are why so many people are advocating for sexual assault courts specifically or specially trained judges because it's not up to – and I don't want to insult the intelligence of jury people. I don't, and that's one of the biggest mm. drivers for doing this podcast yeah. is to educate the potential future juries. Yeah. But as we sit here and discuss this, it's just like are they understanding the intricacies of what the law and what consent means or are they making judgments based on stereotypes and things like that that they've got in their brain, e.g. woman drinking, it's her fault, man drinking, it's her fault. Yeah. Like that's yeah. – it, it starts to become so muddied and that's where, you know, I think about Johnny Cochran in the defence of O.J. Simpson and, you know, making everything about race and uh, 
really playing into a stereotype and leaning into that and again performance it's performance based it's not about getting the right outcome it's not about safety it's not about putting guilty people away it's about who plays the best game and who gives the best performance and it's fucking heartbreaking yeah and it was like i don't think i went into court having a full appreciation of that i mean i do now having lived it and having seen it all in action but like you don't go in expecting that and I don't think anyone truly prepares you for what cross-examination can be like and it was it was everything like I did I just it I have no words to describe it as as a whole because it was so terrifying so intimidating so aggressive is a really good word to describe it and it was just yeah it's just terrifying to face when you're up there and like you're trying to comprehend everything else, let alone feeling unsafe in the same room. And I opted to be in the room during the trial that eventually did take place a whole six months later. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's shocking. It just adds to even more of like an intimidating dynamic. What kind of questions were they asking you while they were cross-examining you? So this is the part I get really angry about. Um, so the defense lawyer in my case was a female. Um, and she was actually a female reservist. So she had defense experience. Um, she asked me a lot of questions. Um, but the one that sticks with me the most was a line of questioning that went something along the lines of Miss Gray. I'll say my last name. That's fine. Miss Gray. Uh, it is said that you are quite a controlling individual. I said, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Um, to which she replied, some would say that you're a little bit um, overly organised. And I said, oh, um, I, I mean, I don't identify that way. I am employed as a logistics officer, so I'm naturally very organised and I'm employed for my organisational skills and I have to plan certain things, so that's just naturally how I operate. And she said, oh, well, you like to be in control. So the night that everything happened, you felt out of control and we're only here because you regretted what happened. And I said, uh, that that's not what happened at all. And she came at me on the stand with this line of questioning and pressed me for about 15 minutes on the same line of questioning. Like you're just, you, you lost control and that's why we're here. And you just got scared and you didn't want people to think that you were a bad person. And she said, she went down to the details. She went, but it's, it's said, and in your room and in these evidence photos, we can see that everything has its own specific place in your room. And it's just not strewn in there. Like you have, you have control and you have, like observation skills and you, you've got to make sure that everything's in its right place. So when you lost control that night, it was just all about you losing control and you regretting what happened. And she persisted for 15 minutes and she finally said, Miss Gray, would you not say that you're fastidious? And I knew exactly what she went when she, when she said fastidious, I knew exactly what she meant. But I looked across at the jury and I was so overwhelmed at this point. There were tears in my eyes and I looked at her and I said, I'm not quite sure what you mean. And she said, wouldn't you say you have tendencies that are similar to OCD, obsessive compulsive tendencies? And I have a best friend who is diagnosed obsessive compulsive. So I knew that I was not. And I went, no, I'm not at all. And she persisted. She kept going until the judge went, uh, defense, I think it's time to relinquish that line of questioning. The victim needs, um, she needs a break. Like I was sobbing 
on the stand because she pressured me. She was like, you're just, you just lost control. That's the only reason we're here. You regretted what happened. And I, I had no idea where to go because it was, was not something I prepared myself for. I didn't think that I was going to get cross-examined like that. Like that was, it was beyond aggressive. So, and then after she persisted with that line of questioning, the judge did like, he, he said, we'll go, we'll take a break. Um, and I left the courtroom. Um, but as I left the courtroom, I was met in the hallway of the court with a whole contingent of people from the perpetrator's squadron. So they were all waiting there to support him. And I walked straight out, bawling my eyes out, full panic attack, hyperventilating, couldn't breathe, red chest, red face, puffy eyes, couldn't even see straight for I was where I was walking. And I walked into a crowd of people that were all of his friends, his peers, his bosses. And I had no idea what to do to get back to the witness support room, which was across the hallway, which is where my dad and my partner were. I had to cross through all of those people. No one had thought to plan that. His squadron had been encouraged to be there to support him. I had no one. I had to travel 3,000 kilometres. I had no allies left in that state because everyone by that point had still been affiliating with the perpetrator and everyone had disowned me essentially as a person. Again, how have you been failed at every single point by every single person in every single process? Like, how can you not think of making you safe having to work? Like, you, you think that a bunch of people that are in the Air Force that are there to support the offender or the alleged offender, you think that they're not going to provide some form of intimidation over you? You don't think that you need to separate them into a separate room? Why in why on earth would you put a room for the victim and their families across the hallway of which it's going to be filled with multiple people? Some of them will be for the, your side and some of them won't be for your side. You can't tell me that this has not come up before. It's bullshit and it is just basically utterly disrespectful and it is so fucked up. I can't believe that you've had to go through that. But on the issue of you being fastidious or whatever, you cannot come up with a fake diagnosis as a legal person. I'm sorry, but you're not a mental health professional and it's undermining the severity to which OCD does have in many people's lives. Second of all, where is the evidence for that line of questioning? This is what pisses me off about the term reasonable doubt and what a defense's role in this is. Their role is to create reasonable doubt so they can make and peddle false narratives all they fucking want. That's lying. Saying that because you're a clean person, of which you have been trained to be, I'm sorry, but doesn't the Air Force and the Defense Force teach you how to keep everything in order? Isn't that your job? Correct. And, and like they she, ask the that way of that a man? she was. No, the way that she was insinuating it was like, you know, everything's in a certain place in your room. And I felt like coming back and saying, and now that I've had like so much time to think about it, I'm like, okay, so does everyone just like throw everything randomly on their ground and that's just like on their floor and that's just how they operate? Like what, nothing has a specific drawer? Like your knives and forks don't have a specific place in their drawers or your socks don't go in a certain place in your drawers. Like that's the type of questioning that she was coming at me with. She said, you know, like each of your pairs of earrings have their own like compartment so you're just overly organized and you're overly controlling and I went isn't that normal like don't most people organize their life and their accessories and you know whatever they have like I just don't throw my underwear in one drawer I like fold them isn't that a normal fucking thing I don't know like it was just 
And like she put, she oh, like I got so worked up and so overwhelmed, and I was like, "How do I answer this?" Because all while she was doing this and getting so aggressive with me on the stand, I was going, "Oh my god, I have to maintain this like appearance. I need to make sure that the jury don't think I'm crazy." Like that's what I was doing. I was like, "I need to be the most perfect victim. I need to, I need to give the most perfect answer so that the jury believe me." Like that's where my mind was going. And I just got so worked up and so tense and so scared in those in those moments when she kept pressing me. And don't get me wrong, the prosecutor tried to interrupt, but for for majority of what was that, I think it was it ended up being like a forty five minute line of questioning that she that she berated me for. I think the like the prosecutor tried to intervene at least ten or fifteen times, and nothing happened. And it wasn't until I got to that point where I could no longer breathe, like I I was out of water. And that was when they finally let me go. And then when I got out there, it happened all again in 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 the hallway because I ex- I walked into the crowd of all of his supporters. And like I said, I had no one there for me um, because I I was posted three thousand kilometers away. So most of the people who knew what was going on, which was a very small circle of people, were three thousand kilometers away, and I had no one left in that like that location that knew what was happening to me. One, because very few people did know what was happening. Two, because people's narratives had changed by the time we got to court. And three, because I wasn't allowed to fucking tell anyone in the first place. So I had no one there to support me. The only people I had were my dad, my partner, who I had known for a whole seven months at that point, um, and my, my boss from work who was just... He's just an engineer, not trained in law, not trained in legal, had found out about what happened to me two weeks prior to going back to the court, like to, to the to the trial. I'm just so horrified and I'm so fucking angry. I'm so pissed off. I'm angry for you, but this is just, again, so many points of failure. How can you raise a line of questioning of which you have no evidence of? Do you have a study that says that people who put their earrings in a certain compartment are more likely to lie about sexual assault? What are you saying? Are you saying that if you put your toothbrush in the toothbrush holder and you've got a clean and organized place, that that would mean something? If you looked at my room right now, you would die because I'm a very messy person. I have ADHD. I'm organized in many ways. But that's your own version of organized, right? Like that's okay. But like my version of organized is is that. But there's piles. Yeah, oh, see, but that's but I'm, fine. I'm saying, like, when, <laughs> when you said that thing about undies, I was like, once I'm looking at my underwear right now, <laughs> and now the bras and the undies have mixed. But, yeah. like, once every six months I try and fold them all and organize them, and there's a good week there where they are, and I feel so good. But mm. I only say, like, this is a part about where I think misogyny really plays a giant part in this because have if that was a man who was going through this line of questioning, them being organized, diligent, and clean would be seen as a positive trait. But they've turned you being clean into you being controlling, and controlling is something that a woman cannot be. So that therefore peddles another narrative. If I had have been in the situation, right, where it's them looking through my room saying, you've got chaos going on everywhere, you're chaotic in your mind, and then they might align, like there's no point do you know what I mean like it doesn't matter what you do you're going to be wrong and it's going to bring a false narrative but I just feel like the only way that you should be able to raise a defense is with evidence you cannot just generate doubt by making 
outlandish accusations to lead into people's pre-existing unconscious biases or biases of, of a known nature. You cannot lead into using words like controlling for a woman because you're trying to make it seem like she is this overbearing and horrible person. With Maddie Lane, in her case, there was a female who was the a woman who was the defense attorney on that case as well. And the whole defense questioning when she was being cross-examined was that she didn't come. She didn't orgasm. You, you're a bit old. You're an older woman, aren't you? And she was just like, I'm one year older than him. And they said, you know, he didn't make you orgasm, so you wanted to take out and you wanted to get your revenge by raising this as an issue. Like, that's what you were doing. And it's just like, first of all, if every woman who didn't come from a sexual or like then there would be no space in the courts because everybody would be there. Second of all, again, how dare you? You're peddling a false narrative that you know is not true. Why don't you get up there and say the reasons why you don't believe that what he did was sexual assault instead of trying to make you seem this other different thing? Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense what I'm feeling frustrated about this? Yeah, it absolutely does because it's just like they're peddling this – I guess this picture of me to make people think like, you know, it's like when we talk about like there's that, there's that famous Taylor Swift interview and I will bring, I will bring Queen Taylor into this. And she said, when a man does something, it's strategic, but when a woman does it, it's like, um, she uses a word it's yeah, but it's just like, it paints it, um, conniving or something like that. It's something to that effect, but that's exactly what they were doing to me. And you are so right. Like if it was gendered the other way and it was a man, they would be going, oh, you know, like you're so, you're so amazing. Like, look at how beautiful and clean your room is. You could never do something like that. But that's how it felt on the stand and what she was, the way that she was coming at me. And it wasn't just like polite questioning. It was berating and it was aggressive. And like to the point where I was like physically, my body language was so far removed. I I felt so sheltered. I was trying any way to like feel safe in that chair because I wasn't allowed to bring a support person in with me. So the only support person I had in that, that whole thing, like I'd met the lawyer the day before because in the six months where the trial got po- like postponed, like rescheduled um, or adjourned, whatever that word is, um, they'd changed the lawyer on the case to the prosecutor. So the prosecutor had changed in those six months. So the, the female prosecutor that I had six months earlier was not the prosecutor that I had by the time we got to the actual trial. And he was a man he'd flown up from a different state just for, just for that trial. And he, like I'd met him the day before. So I didn't have like an extensive understanding of the way he was operating. I knew basically the line of questioning that he was going to come at me with um, like initially when I went in, but I didn't know enough about him to know if he was like supporting me and like whatever was happening. And it was just so overwhelming. So the only actual support person who was designated to me by the state was a, was a witness support officer who same thing I'd met two days before the trial had commenced. So I didn't know her. I didn't know her at all. And at one point when I was giving my evidence in detail about like what I could recall and how I felt in the hospital the next day. And like when I got to points in, in the evidence and in the cross-examination where the lawyer decided to, I guess it was part of her tactic to explicitly tell me um, what the perpetrator had told, like what had, what he had said in his statement about exactly the sexual acts that had happened. Um, When she recounted that to me, 
on like when I was sitting on the stand, I was in tears. I was bawling my eyes out because all of this was news to me because I have a blackout period where I don't recall anything. So that was in itself more trauma because she, the way that she was painting me was like, I was this slut. Like I was like, I had asked for everything in her, like the way that she questioned me was she was framing me. Like I was a common whore. She used that. She said, you were overly familiar with these sexual positions and you asked him to do this. And I had none, no idea of it. So she was telling me graphically what he had said in his statement and like down to like what, whose finger was where and like what was where and who was doing what and all of that. And she had, she went graphically into detail as I was sitting on the stand. I was bawling my eyes out. The witness support officer behind me was in tears. I could hear her blowing her nose with snot, like coming out of her nose. And then I I was trying to deal with that myself all while still like dealing with the defense lawyer who was coming at me with a different line of questioning and was traumatizing me in a whole new way because i never knew any of those details because I had a blackout period and I still have a blackout period. And the only reason I have, and even then I can't take that for, for truth because that's just what he's saying, right? So yeah. it's just, it's like a whole thing. Yeah. I just, Sorry, I, I sound so chaotic, but it's just like these different parts no, of the memories are coming it, to me. This is truth and this is what sharing your story in your own words is. I don't want this podcast to ever be a contrived, you know, very well refined. No, that's not what these stories are and that's not what I want people to hear. I want people to hear the reality of the situation. and the the pub conversation, the cafe conversation. I want Mm. somebody to hear a refined version of the story being told perfectly because nobody recounts shit like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry, but this is just fucked. You are not supposed to be able to use somebody's sexual history against them in any way. And I'm sorry, but that should have been in contempt of court or whatever the fucking equivalent is in that state to say that stating anything of the fact that you're overly familiar with a a sexual position that is making a preconceived again notion planting that in the seeds and the brains of these jurors that not only are you this shrill controlling woman horrible person that everybody would hate to work with because you put things in their place in your bedroom Mm. but also you're overly sexual and you're familiar with this what does that even mean i'm sorry but but i'm yeah but do you want to know she came she came at me with that and she went you're overly familiar with this sexual position this is the sexual position that blah 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 like this is this is what he says has happened and i went i've never been in that sexual position in my life that i can recall and like it took her a moment to stabilize and i went I have, I've never had sex in that position. And then she just, she found a new way to come at me and she kept coming at me. And even if I had, that's fine. Like there's nothing fucking wrong with that. And like you said in the last record, like even if I was walking down the fucking street naked, I was never asking for it. Like, and that is so true. And it's just like the way that she was painting me and then the narrative that came out of, of what was curated out of, like his group of friends and the people that ended up being the witnesses in the case, what was then curated. And I say curated because it was not factual. Um, and that's why I say now I wish I had a recording of that initial statement when I sat on the lounge room floor and those two police officers came and saw me that afternoon. I wish I had a recording of that because 
the like the narrative of those people and those women who were in the room that day was so different to the narrative that was perpetuated in court and it was so evident to me that they had been like working and seeing um and meeting with the defense lawyers in in that time so they had all remained um in that state um and i had been the only one who was a witness to post out obviously like foreign concept saying you're a witness in your own rape case but yeah i was the only one who left and they had it was very evident that they had curated this story and this narrative of me that like was not true at all so for my dad to sit in court and hear that and my partner to sit in court and hear that and my dad had been one of the only people that i had called throughout the entire process because i didn't have close friends not not where i was living when everything happened and he sat there and he went that never happened like jordan called me every single time something happened that never happened and one of my best friends i would I told her what the narrative ended up being in court and she was the person that I sent voice messages to every single day on my journey through through reporting through dealing with the legal system through everything and she said to me Jordan none of that happened none of that happened that is like that is a plan that is a tactic that the defense team has come out with and they made it work they do and it's ha- it, cuz it's subtle right these are subtle things that happen when they plant things like the word controlling when you do that to a woman and you plant that, when you plant the idea of her being promiscuous or something, you're planting ideas in people's minds and words in people's minds and it leads you to jump to a conclusion and down a certain path. We're all guilty of it in many different scenarios. That's why I don't think the jury should be involved in sexual assault cases. There's too many opportunities for this idea of fucking, you know, reasonable doubt to be peddled, but it's not defending somebody's actions. It's not defending saying prove to me that you didn't sexually assault her it's just putting forward an ulterior narrative to play at those biases and you know so many people that I know as well have been supportive in the very beginning and have become not supportive towards the end and that is because in my opinion most of these people are just guilty of and victims of the same system in that sense of, you know, it's gaslighting you. You're having to kind of deal with that and consistently do that. But it's gaslighting them too. They're just not brave enough or intelligent enough to move into a position where they can think freely for themselves and do their own bits of education. So, you know, when I'm saying that is um, with those people, those people who were there that night, if, you know, when you did give that, uh, interview for them to change the narrative, even though they were there that night. Can you talk to a bit about them? Because I think we hate them, right? They're cunts. We don't like them. I think, yeah. I mean, can it's I hard for me, and you can, you can for sure. And this is like, this is a part of me that I'm still working through, right? And everyone's like, Jordan, you're such a people pleaser, and I'm like, I know. Like, I feel like I can never be mean to anyone. Um, but like, and even after the last record, my best friend messaged me and she goes, you did not have to be as nice about those people as you were. She said, like, literally Jordan, those people were horrible to you and you are still trying to protect them. And I went, yeah, I've got no idea why I did that. But yeah, like you're, you're not wrong, Maddie. Like they, the way that the tune changed and don't get me wrong. I like, I don't think it's a personal thing. It could have been it very well could have been, but I truly think it was the fact that like they were in such a close knit community and everyone was together. And then 
I was the only one who left, right? So then they all got together and they all spoke about it because it was obviously a big stressor for the perpetrator who was very much a part of that social scene. And I just, yeah, whether or not it was uh, on them to not conduct their own research or to think critically about what was happening, I I, I honestly don't know. And I, I hope that they have answers now and I hope that they can reflect on on what did happen because like it's not me as a person and the person that I was painted to be in that courtroom does not reflect my identity like and I have a very different identity now because I've I guess I've gone through all this trauma and trauma makes uh, different identities and makes us uh, funnier in a way but um I think like even looking back then I was never like that and that's not to demonize people who are promiscuous and people who do like want to go out and have fun and be like sexually liberated. I'm fucking power to you, queen. Like live your, live your life, live your truth. Like I fucking wish I could do that. I'm not confident enough with my body to be like that. But if I fucking had a banging bod, I probably would be like, I'm just not like that. So you've got a hot body, but I know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same way. You get it. You get it. I'm like, I'm not confident enough, but if I fucking was, I had a, if I, if I was banging, I'd, I'd live my best life too. Like, but the way that they painted me and the way that they curated this narrative that was so not true and like parts of it, parts of it didn't even overlap with like what I had, what I did remember up until a certain point in the night part of the curated story and and what did perpetuate in court was like it blew mine out of the water so even though I said this is what happened and this is exactly what I remember and there were people who could account for that um the narrative that perpetuated it out of the defense team was so strong and painted me as as a slut and that I was asking for it and that I was wearing promiscuous clothing and that I was it was too revealing and that I was just flirtatious with multiple men um you know, like that's the narrative that perpetuated and it, like, it wasn't true. Like I went to that party with the intention of having a great fucking time. And I have voice notes to my friends from that night where I'm talking about like literally just going there to have a great time and have like, we were drinking espresso martinis at one point And I was like, fuck yeah, this is the best espresso martini I've ever had. Like there were no messages there about me being flirtatious with anyone. And I'm so yeah, transparent but- with, with my best of friends. And like, to me, like none of it overlapped and it was just so like there was a huge difference between that narrative that came out of court and the narrative that those same women, those same women helped me fill in the gaps that morning after I woke up and none of it, none of it was the same. But again, like we're, we're and I'm not, I don't want to take away from anything that you just said in any way, but we're, we're deflecting away from the issue. Hmm. The issue is not got anything to do with what you were wearing what time it was whether or not you like it's got nothing to do with with, even if your intention was to go there and fuck somebody that's got nothing to do with the issue at hand the issue at hand is that somebody chose to try to have sex with you and have sex with you when you were too drunk to consent and the evidence suggests that that is the truth now the defense should have to prove that that person either a didn't know that you were that drunk and was under the impression that you were or or to prove whatever what you were wearing and what your promiscuity level has got but fuck all to do with the issue at hand the charges that are being laid against him have got nothing to do with how promiscuous you are or what you were wearing. And I, again, 
Uh, understand that it's all context. It's everything. I don't give a fuck about that though. And again, this would not happen to a man. If a man yeah. went to a fucking bar with the intention of fucking somebody and some other man, let's just make it a man that again, who's the offender here, grabbed him on the way home, got him really, really drunk, and then did this to him, Jeffrey Dahmer style. And I don't mean that to take that lightly. I mean that because that's exactly what fucking happened. How dare you say that that's got anything to do with the fact of what happened? We're not, we're missing the point. The whole court case is missing the point. Did he know how drunk you were? What did he do to make sure that he was getting your consent? What actions did he take? What, why are we focusing on you and your promiscuity level and your clothing? I'm sorry, I'm getting worked up, but it just no, fucks no, me off so much. And that's like, and I think back now and it makes me so angry, but it was purely an attack on me. Like, and I spent six hours on the stand um, and it was the entire like cross-examination was it was an attack on me. Um, and I remember... Um, this is going back right to the beginning of the cross-examination, but the defence lawyer stood up and she said, Miss Gray, can you please share with the court your understanding of consent? And I shared my understanding of consent, which was by definition, um, literally the definition of affirmative consent. Um, and her response was, oh, Miss Gray, it's very brave of you to hold that as your definition of consent, but in the state that we're in and the jurisdiction that we're in, that doesn't cover the, the what is considered the legal definition of consent here. I felt my gut drop. What? Like there was, it was, it was absolutely fucked. Like if I'm saying like, this is my definition of this, this is my definition of consent. This is what I'm taught in defense. And for reference, like in defense at that time, what was being taught as consent um, was the T video. Like that was, that was the best, um, education that defense had come out with the consent education was the fucking t video which you just had to watch once a year and like yep i know what consent is um and they had me explain that in court because in the in in my initial statement that i gave in that police station they said they asked me a similar question they said what's your understanding of consent and what are you taught as consent in defense and i said well this is what i'm taught as consent in defense and i explained the t video and then they brought that up in court and they said, well, what is your understanding of consent in uh, like according to the, the, the T video that you watch as part of your defense mandatory training? And I said, well, this is what the T video says. And they said, well, how do you feel that you're, that, that you didn't consent? And I said, uh, well, in the T video, they say that if someone's asleep and you make them a cup of tea and you try to make them drink the cup of tea, that they can't consent. And I said, that's what happened to me. Like I was asleep. I was out of it. I was unconscious. I can't remember anything. So how could I have drunk the tea? And the lawyer said, like, she then like turned that around and just continued to berate me. And I just, I felt so like there was, there was nothing I could do to to, to turn around and even answer her question in a civilized way because she was just berating me. So I just sat on the stand and I took it. And again, yeah, and again, you can't even be yourself in this moment and show outrage because you have to be a curated version of yourself so the people believe you on the fucking jury. No, yeah. you should be able to say, excuse me, like, I don't agree with that and that not make you look bad. Like, I just, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through this and I'm just so, I'm so outraged with how behind and ridiculous our system is where things that 
we take for granted sometimes, I think, of being absolute just, oh, yeah, of course, what were you wearing? It doesn't matter. Sometimes old, white, stale, pale men might ask that as a question, but they're, they're not the majority. No, it is. And it's being mm-hmm. peddled in courts, and it doesn't matter that you're not allowed to do it. They will find ways to do that in different ways because, again, the defence in this country is not about defending a somebody who's been accused of a crime based on the fact that they're trying to prove that they didn't do it. What the defence is is trying to create doubt by peddling bullshit narratives. And I just can't, I cannot empathise with you more because it is such a horrible position to be in where even though you're being cross-examined, you can't speak or react to that in a way that would be conducive of putting together a thought. You just have to be somewhat robotic about it because that's all you can do. Yep. And I mean, like, how, there how were else parts are you supposed me, to not look fucking crazy? I know. There were parts of me that were so enraged and I could just like underneath the table because the table was like it had a flat front so it was covered and people couldn't see my hands if they were beneath the table. But like my knuckles were white. Like I was clenching my fists that much that like I could feel the tingling sensation in my fingers. I was furious but I had to try and keep a plain face, a face that looked like it was calm, like it was composed because I didn't want the jury or for her, the the defence lawyer, to think that I was going to react to that because I was like, oh, she's just going to come at me for a different reason and she's going to say that I'm overreactive or that I'm like over-exaggerating and I just, I couldn't bear that. And with how much she was coming at me, I just, I was, I was honestly scared, right? Like, what, what can you do in that situation? You're already vulnerable. Yeah. You're already trying to tell your story. And then they're just, they're just coming out to discredit everything about you. And she just wanted to tear every part of me down. But then it was just, yeah, there's, it's, it's so hard to even think back to now. Cause I'm like, what would I have said if, if I'd known all of this now, like if I could go back and do it again, like, would I have would I have been a better witness? Would I have would I have said things in a more intellectual way? Would it have made a difference? Like that, they're the things that I guess plague not just me, but I know every victim survivor because you go back and you replay these memories in your head and you're like, fuck, I could have answered that so much better. Or fuck, I've got so much, all, all this information now that could have served me so much better then. But it just shows how we grow as people and how these like these interactions and these mm. traumas change us and they do change us for the better in my opinion and at least in my experience like I am a stronger person now than I was before and that's not to say that I needed this fuck I didn't need this of course but like it helped me to get to who I am today but it's just it's so fucked and the whole experience for me was just it felt so disheartening and I just I couldn't even so even after I was dismissed as a witness the the prosecutor asked that I not go back and sit in the court um which like I was both unhappy and happy about because um, there would have been no victim protection for me in place against the perpetrator. So whereas there was when I was like actually giving evidence. So I couldn't mm-hmm. even go back yeah. and just listen in the courtroom. And he said, you know, like it's probably a good thing because then the jury, will, they know your face and they're just going to want to watch your reaction to everything and it's going to be really difficult for you. But I couldn't even go back. So I was getting fed that information from my partner and my father who were sitting in court every day for the rest of that, that, that week essentially. And they would just feed it back to me and go, this is what's happened in court this morning. And I'd go, like, I could see the narrative unfolding. I could see what was happening. And I was like, this 
is beyond fucked because it's not factual. It's not true at all. And it just made me, it made everything like slowly over the, over the course of that week, everything that the defense lawyer had berated me about and the way that she had painted me on that stand made sense with how the rest of that court case played out. Cause I went, I can see the strategy there. And that's so fucked, right? Absolutely. It is. And I do want to say, so I do want to finish up so that we can do another part where we can go through the rest of your story. Cause again, like I do want to give it the proper time. And I think it's really important that we take our time, take going through this. But one thing you did say was like, you're better because of it. But what I always say, and I really harp on about this is language matters so much. And it's not because they chose to do that. It's not their action that we're grateful for. It's your reaction and your tenacity and the hard work you've put in and the love and care of the support of the people around you. Like all of this in trauma and in horrible things like this, sometimes we step up and we do different things, but that's your own hard work. It's not on them at all. And I think just when you say that in future, we need to frame it that way because there's never a point where we're grateful for what happened and there's never a point where we give them any fucking credit because the only thing that they deserve credit for is being a fuckwit. And, you know, I know that that's not what you mean, but in the sense of people listening to this, again, I'll always pull that up because language matters so, so much and it's never, ever them. It's always because you've done the work you've put in the hard yards, you've had to go through the trauma, you've had to fight your way through every single battle that's come forward on your own with people in different circumstances. That's you. You're stronger here today because of you. You've overcome the adversity and are still going through it. That's all you. And you should be so proud of you. And I think it's just reframing that into a positivity about ourselves and not something as a reflection on what happened. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for calling that. I think that's so important to denote and like that that is how I meant it and I think I'm just like so irate that I just like didn't enunciate that the right way and you are so so correct because it's it's not them like I did the work 100% and like all victim survivors do but it's just it's so fucked right like you never are I never asked for any of this and and people say that to me now they're like if you could go back and change everything would you do it and I was like no Like I wouldn't because I'm grateful for the fucking work that I've done and I'm grateful for the person that I am now. Like it's just, yeah, it's a a really difficult concept to come to terms with but one that I think for me has been life-changing to understand that. I'm so proud of you and I'm really loving having these chats with you and being able to go into so much detail. But I reckon we wrap up next time with part four and let's pick that back up at what the last parts of the trial were like for you what the outcome of the trial was and and all of the things that you're doing now yeah absolutely we'd love to thank you so much jordan gray um and for everybody listening as well please go to the show notes for this episode make sure that you go follow jordan on the socials go follow the athena project Make sure that you comment and reshare and get this story out far and wide because there are so many ADF members that need to hear this um, as well as other victim survivors everywhere as well. So, again, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today on Reclaim Me. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, like for, for having me here and to, for creating this safe space. And, 
like you said, like this is a story that we need to get out there and we need to bring it out of the darkness. It's the only way we can really make change and it's the only way that we can make the ADF listen is by talking about how uncomfortable and how atrocious these things are. And like I have experienced the worst of of the worst of the system and in order to change that and and make the the reality of lived experiences for veteran victim survivors better we need to fucking talk about how shit it is first a hundred percent and this is the way to do it so i'm so proud of you for, for doing this it's it's incredibly tough but um everything that you're speaking about is so incredibly important so thank you so much jordan thank you Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.